Recently, I was at a conference called Craft and Commerce put on by a company called ConvertKit, now known as Seva. And at that conference, I went to a workshop that caught my eye called Transformational Learning. And it was done by this really cool guy named Dave Stewart. And I've got Dave with me here today. Dave, how are you doing today? John, I'm so excited this morning to be talking with you. Awesome. Tell us more about who you are. I know you live in Michigan. I know you teach ninth grade. You have a family. What mm-hmm. else should we know about Dave? I think you've you've really covered it. I'm a small town teacher, and it's very important to me to do a great job in the classroom for my students. I hold that as like a high calling, but at the same time, it's just as important, well, more important for me to be a super present husband and dad. So I write a blog just DaveStewartJr.com, about living inside of that tension and trying to do great work in all the areas of life. And that's that's why I think I was so excited to talk to you, John, because I resonate a lot with the things that I that that we've already spoken about. I hope we get into today, like, you know, living life on purpose and taking ownership and uh kind of a no excuses approach. Yes. The things that yeah, just it's so difficult to work those into students and help students explore that and even to work that into ourselves. Well, a little more about on this session that Dave did that was so helpful and so good and just hit me right where I was at. It's all, it's all about transformational learning. Transformational caught my eye because that's the whole purpose of the coaching I do, which is to help people transform themselves. Mm. What I took away from this workshop was that it was all about what I would call experiential learning. Now, maybe there's a educational term that you would use around there. And I'm curious, how did you get onto that path of that being so important and teaching it and all that stuff? Well, one thing you and I connected on right after the session was just that you appreciated how it was a little bit from me and then a little bit from them talking with one another, working out some carefully designed prompts that I had put forward to them. You had a funny term for that too. Which was, I was calling it the data download and you were calling it, was it like give and get or something like that? Or you had some Yes, yes, yes. We connected on that. Sit and get yeah, that's is, the, is the model that's really common. That model is really common at like a conference. You go and, you know, you just sit and get. And you'd come up and just said, I really appreciated that it was, that it was, there was these opportunities to process. And so I just came across that because when you teach ninth graders, these people are 14 and 15 years old and they're not, they're not they're, 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 none of them are going to learn anything if I just talk at them for 60 minutes. Even if it's the most amazing, entertaining, <laughs> anecdote rich lecture on world history, they'll be entertained in that moment, but they won't learn and process the material and be transformed. So that's how I came on it. It just, it's a, it's a net, it's a necessity when you're working with teenage learners. Did you figure this out the hard way or did you just know that this is the way to do it? It's it's the type of thing that I've picked up from master teachers, John. People people way, way more advanced in the craft than me many more years in. It's, I, I think, a very common concept in the education world. The idea that there's got to be that, um, that dance happening between direct instruction and to guided practice where we're doing it together, to independent practice where we're doing it um, on our own. It's just got to be this constant like weaving and moving back and forth between the different modes. 
Do you have any ideas on how to do that with conferences? Like, So, yes, I came up to you after the conference because I've been straddling these two different worlds, moving more out of the like traditional conference, online marketing world into much more experiential learning. And then I have a really hard time now when I'm not in, when I'm in the, what did you say? The get, <laughs> the sit and get. The sit and get, yeah. <laughs> when I'm in yeah. sit and get, I, I don't, my mind just kind of shuts down. I, I find myself getting frustrated and I, I approached you because I thought, okay, well, instead of just saying this is dumb, uh, I don't want to go. Like how, how can we make these situations better? How can we improve them? Do you have any ideas there? It's going to take supporting workshop presenters and, and people at conferences. And I think that this conference, from what I saw, did much better than, than a lot that I've been to in terms of, especially in the workshops, having people, having people with more of a, with more of a back and forth. I don't think that was uniform across the, across the whole conference, but there were multiple workshops where that, that was kind of the, the mode is back and forth between the learner and the, and the instructor, the workshop leader. The fact is, you know, everyone has an opinion on education, right? Because everyone has received some type of education growing up. And, and it's, it's really easy, I find, as a teacher for anyone to just kind of, you know, shoot from the hip and critique education and, and how education is. But the funny thing is that when we get in the position of teacher, whether it's at the workplace or teaching our children or, um, you know, leading a workshop, we often go straight to those modes that we sort of decry about, you know, the traditional education model. We, we go straight to like, well, this is what I know. And, and it's just, it's, it's kind of ironic, but. So how do you, is there a place? So I'm teaching a podcasting class, an in-person podcasting class. And what I found, in fact, just last night was I was teaching about microphones and microphone technique. And there were certain portions where I could not figure out how to make it interactive. Like it was, Right. In other words, I couldn't have this group discussion around what do you think uh, the best microphone is when yes. it's a room of people that don't know anything about microphones. So what do you do in yes. a situation like that? That's the difference between surface level knowledge and deep knowledge. So for podcasting, yeah, the, the technology piece, it's not hugely debatable, right? And people like you, John, who put together really well-crafted podcasts and all immersed in this podcasting world, we, people like me, who are not immersed, but might be interested someday, we just need you to tell us. Tell me to just get this microphone. But then where we can where we can play around and discuss and, and do role playing, that's with the, the, the bigger principles. Like before we came on this podcast, just kind of pull back the curtain, John and I were, John, John laid out with me, hey, these are kind of some of the things that we want to keep in mind as we're doing this interview. Just to like, those are the kinds of things where when you're leading this class that you want people playing around with and practicing and, you know, role playing with each other. Okay. I'm the interviewer. You're the interviewee. Um, and, and maybe even have like the interviewee present some common problems, like, <laughs> like the interviewee talking too long, you know, like I am right now. But I think though that's, you're, you're totally putting your finger on something that a lot of beginning teachers even in, in my world don't understand. And that's that some things should just be told. It should be sit and get. Is because there, is, you know what you're talking about, right? With this technology stuff. Right. So is there a, is there a, I don't know, a golden ratio or a, if, if you need to do some sit and get, 
is there, you know, a percentage of sit and get that works, but then you just yeah. have to shut up and, and turn it into a discussion or uh, do some co-learning with the people there? Awesome question. A rule of thumb that I've heard, and I don't have anything to back this up or even know I've heard it, is take the age of your learner and that's that's like the longest time that they should be sitting there and receiving direct instruction. Ooh. And then after that, you should be doing something something interactive. Even if it's a turn and talk to your neighbor, what's your top takeaway? Like what's your next step in terms of microphone technology? I'm going to buy this microphone or whatever. I'm going to put it in my cart right now. So I think with adult learners, that ratio breaks down because – I do think there's a, there's a, there's a ceiling. I know that when I'm working with adults, talking to teachers, I'm trying to limit my talk time to probably 20 minutes at the most. And then I want them doing something, even if it's super short, 60 seconds, turn and talk. It just breaks it up. Like you said, gives them a chance to data download. I love that (laughs) process that information. And then you can dive back in. If there's more things that you just need to, that you just need to go through like technology pieces. Uh, so I got a new term now, turn and talk. What are yeah. some other ones? Turn and talk. So a, a classic move from the 80s that I still think is very powerful in the hands of a attentive teacher would be think, pair, share. So this is a strategy where you want the person to, to do their own thinking. They can do that in their head or through writing. And then they turn and talk with a partner. And then you pull out a couple of volunteers and ideally a couple of like non-volunteers I mean, in the in the high school classroom, <laughs> that was always me. <laughs> yeah, you were not volunteering in no, class. No, no, I'm an introvert. Yeah, I was just yeah. sitting in the back, kind of take it all in. Don't call on me because I probably don't have the answer. Yes, me too. So why are we doing this podcast right now? This is something I'm genuinely interested in. How do people like you and me, the introverts who never raised our hand in high school? We're raising our hands so high right now, John, recording a podcast to be sent into the universe. Why, why do, what do you think that is? For me, it's curiosity. It continues the learning. It's also there's the, the uncertainty. Like what I love in these conversations is I have no idea where we're going. I have no idea what we're going to talk about. Well, I have some idea. I don't know where we're going to end up, but I know right. I'm confident that somewhere along the line, if I stay totally present with you that we're going to discover something new that we wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. So, but in high school, it's like, it's like for me, at least, you know, the kid never raising his hand, never volunteering. It just wasn't fully developed in me or something, you know? Well, I think it was, I think for me in that context, it was the fear of being wrong. Whereas Mm, in this context with you, there is yeah. no wrong. <laughs> like right. we said when we right. started, I said, I said, let's yes. just play full out. And if there's something we don't like, we'll just take it out. We'll fix it later. Yeah. But just so true. show up 100%, see what happens. Yeah. And, and also our audience here is self-selected. I, I, I find that very freeing as an introvert to know that no one is going to listen to this podcast unless they like want to, you know, <laughs> unless it's required like, listening for your next class. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. It's a good idea, John. I need to make this required listening. <laughs> so how did you get, how did you get beyond just teaching? Because when I think of teachers, I think of someone that works, you know, 60 or 70 hours a week. They're just mm-hmm. 
they're just living from like lesson plan to lesson plan to teaching yeah. to teaching to exhaustion to family to mm-hmm. running on fumes. But you don't strike me as a person that's running on fumes. And I think that's why I started because I actually quit. I quit teaching after three years. I taught in Baltimore for three years and I loved it and found it very fulfilling, but so unsustainable. So I took a year off, explored all different types of avenues. And finally, just through necessity, came back to teaching. I just needed money. Like our family was, we were expecting our first child and I I needed to do something. So might as well use my credential. And I realized when I came back that I did love it, that this was what I was kind of like, this totally fits for me, but I've got to find a different way. How did you know it fit? So at the time I was reading books on calling and I remember like, it was like the, the three, it was affinity, ability, and opportunity. Do you like it? Are you capable of it? Do other people tell you that you're capable of it? And is there a need, you know, like there's only a need for so many super, super niche, you know, Russian literature, PhDs, there's only a need for so many of those people, right? Um, so maybe your calling isn't to do be a Russian literature PhD, even though you really love it and have a strong ability for it. Maybe it's something else. But for me, obviously, there's, you know, three and a half million teachers in this country and they're quitting all the time. So the need was there, the ability, the affinity. So that's kind of just what clicked for me. You were going somewhere else there and I jumped right in. No, I, I, I think that's a great question. I was just writing about that yesterday because I think a lot of teachers struggle with it. But to go to your first question, I just, I I knew it had to be different. If I was going to stick to teaching long-term and I felt strongly compelled to do that, I was going to need to find a way to make it behave itself and fit within a normal work schedule. And as I got better at that, John, I started to get a little bored. Well, what am I going to do with my time? (laughs) Bored as a teacher. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and desiring something really hard to do because I was always exhorting my students like, listen, guys, society's telling you that if you don't do drugs and turn in your homework, sometimes you're a great teenager, but that's insulting. Like you're capable of so much. So challenge yourself. But then I was sitting in my life, like not feeling that strong challenge. So I started to read um, books about how to, how to write books because I love writing and the first thing that they all were kind of telling me is you need an audience of yourself before a publisher would even look at you. So that led me to blogging. And then what did that lead to? So the first, the first six months, just me writing a ton of blog posts, I chose a really niche topic. It was this new set of standards that were out that people were talking about. And I had never really read teaching standards. Like I'm not a, I'm not like a super sciencey teacher who's like, okay, today we're hitting standard 4.A.9.B. Point point so I just wanted to challenge <laughs> myself to read these things. And there are, there are teachers like that, John, and, and some of them are really great, but I just, I, that was so outside of my grid. So I was just writing about these standards and eventually I made an ebook and eventually a publisher reached out and wanted to, you know, this was like a really time sensitive topic and everyone's in the United States has probably heard of the Common Core by now, seen a news story about it or heard a politician, you know, spout off about it. And it's kind of like all in the past now that that moment is has come and gone. What is it, by the way, for someone like me that 
or has heard the yeah. term, but has no idea what it is. It's just a set of goals. That's all. A set of goals. There, there's a set for literacy. So like there's 10 goals in reading that by the time a kid graduates high school, they should have these 10, these 10 big level skills with reading and writing, speaking and listening. There's also a set of them for mathematics. So the, the controversy came because it was national and our, our country is this strong, like local, local, locally controlled school system where it's, you know, school boards and states have a lot of control over schools. So it just felt, I think to a lot of people like federal overreach and, um, yeah, but that, but that's where I got my, my first kind of writing opportunity, John. And then from there I expanded out to more general things. So you took this common core thing and what, Mm -hmm. what was special about what you were doing? Nobody was doing it or what? Great question. Yeah. Cause that matters so much. If you're going to get a readership is people have a million things they can read online. So they want to, needs to be something compelling about you. And I think there's two things. One, I was a practicing teacher in the classroom writing from that gave, I think it gave my writing, uh, a more, a bigger opportunity to viscerally connect with people who are stressed out about this. And two, I happened to find upon a phrase a non-freaked out approach, the non-freaked out approach to the common core was kind of like my mantra at the time. And I think that that connected with a certain slice of a certain slice, you know, very small group of people who like immediately said, yes, that's what I want. And so that kind of helped the initial formation of the people who would, who would by choice read read what some random guy from Michigan has to say. So this is the classic, you're solving a problem that people have. What Mm -hmm. is this common core thing? Yeah. Yeah. And solving a problem that I have too. And I think, John, this is something that I, that I sense in you. It's like you're doing this coaching and a lot of it though is, is self-discovery for yourself, right? Like this, (laughs) all this learning that you're doing about coaching is teaching you about John Yes. And that makes you a better coach. Yes. Right? Yeah. It's one of the most, it's one of the most satisfying, fun things about it. Yes. And they also say that you tend to coach the people that have the same types of things that you are working on or learning yourself. And Mm -hmm. I'd say that there's a element of truth to that. Yeah. I mean, those are the people that we love to learn from because just like we were talking about earlier, it's not going to be a sit and get. It's going to be, okay, this guy, John, he's got some tools, some skills, some experience with coaching. He's deeply studying this, this idea of coaching people toward change and transformation. But also he's just a guy that I can totally relate to and, you know, go out and have a meal with. And so I just think like that creates, that's the context within which true transformational learning can happen. So how does, how does that happen? And then where does the blog go and where's the next step in your progression here? Well, I got really tired of the common core really fast. Like (laughs) like I told you, like I told you, it's just not my thing. So it was a nice challenge at first, but by the time my, my book came out from the traditional publisher, by the time that came out, like I was so tired of common core, so tired of that book that like, I didn't, I didn't, I don't think I recommended anyone on my blog to even read it, John. Like I was the worst marketer of that book ever because I just, you know, it, it was, a, it was an important thing for me to do. 
I think the book did did serve a need. I've spoken with people who were, who were touched by the book and helped by the book. But I think people like you and me, John, we don't just want to chase after the flavor of the day. We don't just want to like try to find the next wave to jump onto. It's like, what's timeless? What can I be talking about today on John's podcast that someone could listen to in 15 years and be like, oh, okay, yeah, that, that like still connects. That still speaks to something in me. So I, the, the next step was expanding away from common core. And that, that's when I changed my blog to the Dave Stewart junior.com. And that's when I just really started to write from a more authentic place, a more whole place of like, Hey, just here's what I'm thinking about teaching today kind of thing. And what made, here's what I'm teaching today different for you. I'm guessing there's a bunch of blogs out there like that. What, what was right. different about yours? So I had some advantages at that point because I already had a readership, a couple thousand subscribers. Wow. Um, I, you know, yeah. That's I mean, decent. That's, <laughs> well, that, that's, I love a thousand people on my list. Yeah. That's three years of just pounding away. Mm. I probably wrote 200,000 words on that blog. Um, this was before I had like a consistent publishing schedule or anything like that. So it was in fits and starts, but I wrote a lot. And I think a decent amount of that stuff helped. And so over time, yeah, collected a couple thousand people. So that's, that's, that's automatically given you an opportunity to write at a more general level and continue to grow your audience because people already care about what you have to say. But I think also writing all those words about Common Core, it just gave me a quantity of practice at writing. And so my writing was just better. You know, if... Dave Stewart of six years ago is starting a blog and he wants to just do general teaching that guy. And you know, anyone can go back and see how he wrote. It wasn't, it was rough. And I would think that's just like, that's just like my, myself in 2022 is going to look back and say, man, 2018 Dave, like he was getting better as a writer, but, but he still had a long way to go. You know what I'm talking about? So I think that helped though, that helped that I, I would just, I was a better writer. I mean, the quality of the writing matters. We lose that sometimes in the internet age and we think it's just get the work out there, get the work out there. And that's true. And that's how you get better. But the work isn't always super good. So it's not always super effective early on. So it's time, practice, persistence, yeah. grit. Yeah. I mean, I remember talking with you, John, about your earliest podcast. <laughs> yeah, we just started doing them. <laughs> right. Yeah, one thing led to another. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, everything about it was probably, if you listen to it now, it's almost a little cringy, right? Yep. Yeah, there's some definite cringe moments. Yeah, but that's the only way that we get to right now. So right now, before we, when we talked about doing this, it somehow slipped out that you were writing a new book, or you have a new book in process, and I said, oh, can you send me a draft of it so I can skim it or just check it out. So you did. And so I confess to not reading every word, but I did skim it from beginning to end. Um, people, this thing is solid. I'm not a teacher, but if I was a teacher, this is seriously the book I would read. Yes. It is. Like, <laughs> I mean, maybe that's why you wrote it. So say more about what drove the creation of this current book that's yet to be published. It's coming out soon is my understanding. What drove you to wrote it? And go ahead. Yeah, right. I mean, at the, at the time of this recording, I think it'll be out 
the the genesis of the book is just what what you asked me about it a minute ago. So that classic teacher is working just constantly, constantly in survival mode, drowning. And this is why in the United States, the average teacher does not make it to year five. You're an outlier if you make it past five years. So that drastically lowers the quality of an education that the average kid in the United States experiences. Because, you know, if all of our doctors were like five years and done, I think I'd be a little more nervous going to the doctor's office. (laughs) But here we have these people whose job it is to basically keep our society flourishing, like prepare our next generation. And they're not, they're not lasting five years. So the question became, what can we focus on? What can we focus on and just kind of good enough the rest, all, all the distractions and stuff, don't do them or, or do them just good enough, just really fast, get them done. But what are the things to go really, really big on? So that's, that's where the book, the book's Genesis was at. And I was traveling around the country, John, that that's something we didn't talk about. The big thing that this did to push introvert me out of my comfort zone is I started to offer speaking in workshops. Wow. Yeah. And schools have a schools all around the country have a budget for this. The size of it varies, but you know, good professional development experiences for teachers, there's a big need for that. There's a lot of mediocre PD for teachers. Teachers call it PD, professional development. <laughs> Another one I got. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, the, but 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 like the, there's there's just a huge need. So as I started to write blog posts that connected with people, they'd forward it on to their principals, and the principals would invite me to come out. And so as I was traveling around, and I'd get in these situations where it's like a whole room full of every teacher in the high school, you know, at this place in Oklahoma. And so how do you say something meaningful to the band director and the English teacher? And the chemistry, the AP chemistry teacher and like the physical education teacher, how do you do that? Like what is relevant to all those people? And so wrestling with that over the past five years, I came down to, well, there's, I think there's six things. There's six things. And that's the title of the book. These six things that we can have really good conversations all across the departments in the school day and kind of come together around while acknowledging that there's things in physical education that that are awesome and unique and need to be happening in physical education. But, but here's our common ground. So that's, that's kind of the Genesis story of the book. That's why I wrote it. And, and I love it too. Cause one of the first things I wrote down, I wrote down, I don't know, five or six things to ask me. I wrote down success as a teacher isn't doing everything. Yeah. And who in the audience right now has watched the movie, the, the made for TV movie, the, the inspirational Hollywood take on the teacher who comes in, does everything, literally saves the lives of kids. And, you know, it's just them. They're like the savior and they come in and thank goodness for them because all their other teachers are just jerks. You know, <laughs> they just hate, they hate children. They're the worst people ever. And the administrators, all they, you know, they're just heartless, soulless, like, they're like against the savior teacher, you know, and these parents, you know, they're trying hard, but they just need that teacher. And so, John, I'm telling you, that is the dominant picture that the hundreds of thousands of people who enter this profession every year have in their head. Well, yeah, and they lose their families in the process, but so they lose their family. But yes. this whole classroom of kids 
goes on yes. to the future yes. and you're kind of left wondering like was this worth it or not i'm not sure yes my yeah. favorite ones so my favorite one in the genre is freedom writers freedom writers not writers writers like <laughs> like writing <laughs> yeah not writing writing yeah okay yeah and in that in that film the protagonist teacher she loses her marriage because she's working like four jobs in addition to teaching or something crazy so that she can do all these things and have all this money to pour into her kids. And I mean, it's a moving film. People love that film, but I love that it shows the real cost. She sacrificed everything for those kids. And if that is what it takes to make education in a, in a country excellent, then we're never going to achieve it. So we have to come up with a better way, a smarter way. And so I, I, I love that, that quote that you pulled out. Success as a teacher is not doing what they do in those movies, which is literally everything. So what is success as a teacher? It's promoting the long-term flourishing of kids. That's all of our job. We can't guarantee it. There's None of us are omnipotent, you know, Sometimes, sometimes we get that impression like, well, if the teacher just did this, nope. I mean, just like you talk about John with the people that you coach, we want to, we, we, it's the students who have to do the work. And so success as a teacher is providing a classroom, no matter what you're teaching, what grade level, providing a classroom, a learning experience, a time together, a semester where you've done everything in your power to promote the long-term flourishing of their, of, of your kids. So Maybe you're teaching world history like me or, you know, it's biology like my colleague down the hall. You're teaching kids to master that subject, but it's all for the sake of promoting their long-term good. Well, the word I hear there is leadership, mm. which is a total worn out word from corporate America where I spent most of my time. And it's only recently that I really kind of fallen in love with that word and understood it. Because well, tell me about that. I want to hear about that. Well, it's from this. So I have this whole thing around personal ownership, but what I'm realizing as I go deeper with it is it's 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 ownership. It's owning all your stuff, but it's also leading yourself. Mm. And where are you leading to? And how are you leading? And so when it comes to group of groups of people, and what I hear you, what you're doing with this classroom, and what I observed in the workshop that you led that I attended was. You weren't just facilitating. So I used to think that leading and facilitating were the same things. They're not. Facilitation, mm. I've come, at least the way I like to define it is, it's more air traffic control. You're just mm. making sure that all the airplanes land without land and take off without anyone dying. Yeah. And on time and all that. Leadership is, I, I see like kind of a, a level above that, which is, I'm going to I'm going to take us in a particular direction because I think it's the right place to go. If it's not, we're going to adjust, shift, change as need be. But I have a place that I think that we should go. And so I see that's what I see you doing with your classes. I mm. we need to learn this material. These are skills that I think you need to have. But my hunch is on a given day if you get to a certain place and you realize it's not working, wisdom is not jamming that in. It's saying, mm -hmm. "Oh, we need to, and this is from some of my coaching training, we need to like co-create something different here. Mm. And yes. maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe you're turning it over to the class to say, hey, this isn't working today. P 
people? Yes. What do we that need? Like, move. what is missed? Like, something is off today. What, what, right. what do we need? What are you needing that I'm not giving you? Or what needs to happen here? Yeah, I've, you're, you're like right where I'm wrestling right now. What you're talking about is like, so, because in teaching a common phrase that we'll say is like, oh, that teacher gets it. You know, he, he gets it. She gets it. And it's like this super vague thing, but we kind of all know what it means. Yeah, what do you but, get? <laughs> well, right, right. But 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 like we can't really define it. But I think what you're tapping into is 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 clarifying for me that part of it is they just have this like leader sense or this leader wisdom. It's it's yes, you walk in the, to the class that day and you do have a plan, right? And you have a vision for how that plan connects with your whole year goals and your one month goals. Like that's necessary. But then equally necessary is just this attentiveness to what is happening live in the learning environment that day and this ability to on the fly, like you said, yeah, sometimes you pull out and you say, okay, guys, I'm noticing this. What, what do you, what do you, what's your insight right here? Why, why do you think that we're having a hard time with this? What am I missing? What's not clear? Is there something going on? And like having this, having a sense of when to pull that move. But then when did, when did, when to alternatively, like sometimes you just, it's just, it's just a little like blip and the best thing to do is going to be to, to just kind of move a little faster and, and get to the next thing. And yeah. that's leadership. That's yeah. leadership. Like you're defining it. Well, and I think too, I feel like the classroom is a beautiful example. You also have to give those kids a compelling reason to follow you. Oh, totally. You can be a dictator. And yes. get certain outcomes, and I see that with yes. my son, you know. That, <laughs> yep. And there's, so there's a difference between leading, dictating, facilitating. Uh, to me, leader leading is, is the most compelling long-term win. Yes, exactly, John. I love that, man. That's, that's, that's just like, I mean, that, that's getting it. You know, that, that's, that's part of it. It's like, it's, <laughs> Those teachers yeah. that say John gets it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's just that, I mean, it's, it's what I felt right when we met each other. Like, and we both, we both have like the same value and, and that value is I want, I want long-term victory. I want long-term achievement. I don't want a short-term win, you know? Yes. And it's just, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah I, love that you, I love that you say that because yes, and, and that's the loop back into the experiential learning is my experience of sit and get is short-term high, long-term lack of success versus yeah. the experiential, which is, okay, I just learned a little something and I used to hate these things. Now turn to your neighbor and whatever. Well, now it's like, no, the turning to the neighbor part, maybe it'll be awkward. Maybe it won't. I've met some amazing people that way now. Mm-hmm. I'm actually learning something and it's actually anchoring if it's done well and the prompts are good, like yours mm-hmm. were, it's actually right. anchoring what I'm doing and I'm actually doing something with it. And when I do something with it, it sticks. Yes. 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 And so what do we need to get to that place where we can, where we can create those transformational experiences, whether it's in a workshop or with our kids? I love that you brought up parenting because this so informs that. Because really parenting is teaching, you know, it's, it's teaching someone how to do life, how to be in the world in a way that's, you know, like positive and good. Yeah. And it's also trying to lead this little person in a particular direction that, yeah. that, yeah. that I think is ultimately beneficial for them. I right. could be wrong. 
Well, sure. And our, and our kids will tell us that someday, you know, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, yeah. That's, that's like yeah. the humbling part of teaching is, you know, unlike the workshop participant who is, you know, here today, gone tomorrow, typically, um, they might think that we're doing it wrong, but our, our kids, like you just can't escape. But as a parent, you, the, the mandate is I want to do everything that I can that I think is in your long-term best interest. I want to do it well, but just as like the, you know, not perfect people that we are, it's going to be, there's going to be blind spots. It's, that's a rough part of teaching or parenting. How did you stumble on this idea? So one of the areas of the book that I really loved was this notion of teaching kids to argue. <laughs> how did you, yeah. get, how did you stumble on that? Cause that, that's like completely missing in today's world Yeah, where the loudest voice right. or the biggest right. social media following wins. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's the place that it starts with the kids is like, first of all, helping them to clearly conceptualize what the argument that we're after is. And I, I describe it with them and we unpack how it's, it needs to be earnest, bring intensity, bring uh, a passion for the truth, uh, a respect for evidence and logic and reasoning, bring that earnestness, but also amicable. It needs to be amicable. Like at the end of this, this argument, we want to be closer friends. We want to be constantly internally at risk of needing to adjust our views in this argument. So that's pretty intense to try to teach uh, 14 year olds, right? Well, especially and when all they've seen is a one way, you know, diatribe yes. on what someone's version of the truth is. Yes. Zero sum, uh, reality TV style, you know, professional wrestling style. Even like presidential debates, think about think about every presidential debate I've ever watched as as an adult so far, not just this most recent election. It typically is zero sum. It's not a collaborative conversation. So I think I came across it out of out of what exactly what you're saying. I saw the problem, and also master teachers were writing about how kids love to argue. An argument is like a thread throughout all of academia. And if we just would make that thread more explicit and clear for kids, more of them might find school compelling. Well, and I like too the tie-in that you had with beliefs and mm. and your encouragement, if I'm remembering this correctly, for them to really get clear on what they believed or what the evidence was behind something. Yeah. Yeah, beliefs, I think, undergird motivation in the classroom. When, when kids believe that the teacher's a good teacher, for example, if they think I'm a good teacher, specifically that I care, that I'm competent, and that I'm passionate, if they believe that, they're way more likely to argue the way that I'm asking them to argue or read the article that I'm asking them to read. So that belief, the belief that I'm a good teacher absolutely changes the trajectory of that child. So I, as a teacher, need to be very mindful of that. And of course, the same dynamic is at play in you and I when we're talking with our children, uh, you when you're doing a coaching uh, client, talking with someone that you're coaching. If they believe that we're a good parent, if they believe that you're a good coach, they're more likely to benefit from the experience. How do you help students shape their own beliefs about maybe these topics they're arguing. Because what jumped out at me here was 
the notion of being able so we live in this whole world now where we can look up facts quote and I use yes. air quotes we can look up yeah. facts on google but you can't google your own beliefs you got to figure it out right yeah yeah so you i mean here you're talking about like beliefs on issues you know stances on issues what's what's the best answer to you know gun control in the united states or something like this and I think that you discover those beliefs by reading widely, by listening to divergent opinions, which I agree with you, is incredibly hard today because everyone's talking in their own little echo chamber. And, and I think like that's where the teacher facilitating in-class debates is really important. And that teacher has to have a ton of self-control, John, because I have opinions on all the things, right? <laughs> right. I have opinions on all the things. But in my classroom, I need to I need to model for students this type of objective, other honoring, other loving even stance of argument. And so I can't demonstrate bias in facilitating an in-class argument. There are some moments where I need to maybe have a side conversation with the student or maybe that student might say something. You know, I remember last year I had a kid who, who said like, Hitler actually was a good guy. So there's just lines that we as teachers have to draw to where it is maybe something that we want to talk with that child about to just say, Hey, I'm just kind of wanting to explore your thinking a little bit more here. You know, what's, what's like, like talk to me more about that. Talk to me more about that. Because obviously, like, I don't want any of my children to, any of my students to get to this place where, like, they're, as, as history students, not honoring, like, the pain of history. You know, I think that's one thing that a history class should do is make you more empathetic. So I don't really want to get to this place where, like, my kids are just, like, uh, callously, like, sweeping away lots of pain. So... I guess I just say all that, John, because it's it's like this constant dance and internal inspection of myself of, okay, how active do you be in guiding a young person to discover what their stances are on different issues? Um, at what point do you try to influence those beliefs? At what point do you just ask clarifying questions and allow that student to discover their own stance? Well, and I love, too, the idea of just providing the space for it and the... yeah Yeah almost the coaching or the guidance to say, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I can remember being in high school and saying, asking someone at my church, like, how do you know that, that God exists? Right. How do we know? Right. And they were not equipped to help me. They're like, no, um, well, um, I don't know. Hopefully, you know, like someday it'll probably make more sense to you versus someone that could have said, wow, John, that's a huge question. You know, yes. trying to figure out what we believe is really important. <laughs> yes. Here's here's some ways to kind of foster and explore, and here's some ways right. that you could have start with that. Now, I, I, I'd kind of taken this out of the context of belief in your classroom, but I don't know. It no, just jumped out at me. That's a relevant context. I think the best conversation I've ever had with a teacher about facilitating in-class arguments, uh, she was a theology teacher at a private Catholic school. She was earnestly wrestling with, okay, I want my kids to own the faith. Like, I know that if 
kids just walk out of here and are just practice giving pat answers on tests or essays, then it's not real. So how do I have kids debating in a theology class in a way that's like, you know, responsible as for me as a theology teacher who certainly wants them to like have a deep faith when they leave, but who also realizes like you don't, you can't force faith onto someone like no, and you they can't do, give someone their beliefs either. Right. You, you, <laughs> yeah, you, you can't box it up and say, here you go. Like now now you're a theologically sound, like in good standing member of the Catholic Church. So I loved that question. I think one thing we discovered in that, we decided that the kids can debate with the theologians that they were reading in class, but it needs to be in a way that they'd be comfortable with if that theologian was sitting like right there. So like if Aquinas is sitting right there, <laughs> would you like, you know, kind of say, oh, this Aquinas guy, like he doesn't know what he's talking about. He was just, like, no, we wouldn't, we wouldn't talk to a visiting guest, Thomas Aquinas dismissively or flippantly. We would, we would treat his views as if they were serious and important and as if he had spent his whole life studying and arriving at them. So from that place of respect, I think that that teacher found debate to be a really important addition to her theology class. The other thing that jumped out at me in in skimming your book was that you have this whole thing around having helping students get comfortable with public speaking. Mm-hmm. I thought that was mm-hmm. so awesome because oh, my experience of public speaking, I can remember in junior high, it was... Uh, yeah. the steps were memorize this speech and stand oh, in front yeah. of the class and do it. And it yes. sucked. Oh, it was so like, just, I was like, I'm like, Oh my gosh, Dave has a better way here. Such misery, man. Oh my gosh, John. Yeah. Same thing for me. There's this guy who writes so well about teaching speaking. His name's Eric Palmer. It, you know, he writes for the teaching world. And he, he always calls it like the big speech in May and how we have to get away from that, you know, cause it's just like, it's viscerally terrifying for literally 80% of the kids in our schools. None of them like that, the big speech in May that you just described, which, you know, probably everyone listening is like, oh yeah, I totally remember that. It was terrible. So his big thing is like, we got to normalize public speaking, make it a regular thing. I think a big part of my classroom too is to normalize anxiety around public speaking. Like I start with really low stakes public speaking situations where like you're going to stand up at your desk and read one sentence that you wrote during today's warm up. If that's what you want, that's what that's that's like the minimum standard today. And like that's a big push for kids and I on purpose don't tell them it's coming. It's 3 weeks into the school year. We've done think pair share every day with me randomly calling on some kids to just like have them give them these experiences where they talk for the whole class to hear and they didn't die. And Mr. Stewart gave you a chance to like practice what you were going to say, literally think, pair, and then share. Then he's calling on you. So it's not like a surprise, you know, were you paying attention type thing? And then, uh, yeah. And then this really low stakes initial, initial whole class debate. And from there we build, but John, I tell you, it's, it's the most powerful thing that I do in the class is just giving kids this like required opportunity, (laughs) very carefully ramped up to speak publicly. Like that's where the biggest transformation happens in my room. Kid who 
skipped school the whole week of the middle school speech and now is like begging me for pop-up debates. That's, <laughs> that's just, I mean, every year, man, that, that is like one of my favorite, favorite things to watch play out. Cause it's just like your life has literally been changed and I didn't do anything except think about how to require you to do something that's, that's hard. That's, that's really tough that, that you're, that you're pretty worried about. And that will serve you the rest of your life. The rest of your life, whether it's being on a podcast or doing an interview for a job, going on a, going on the first date. There's just so many situations in life where you can't get away from public speaking. <laughs> wow. So any other big messages in your book, things that you want people to think about or know before we wrap up here? Just, I just want folks to, and I know your audience is in all, in all, in all facets of facets of life, but just think about those teachers, those teachers in your life, teachers that, you know, friends, teachers, teachers of your kids and just how to encourage them because they're overwhelmed to the point of constant burnout. They're quitting like they never quit before. And our kids like need a world and we need a world selfishly, like be selfish and encourage a teacher today because it's, it's an investment in the long-term good of our society. So that, that'd be kind of the big thing, John, that I would say. I was going to say, and also buy them a copy of your book and give it to them. I, I mean, that, always, that might work. <laughs> that's always an idea. <laughs> it's, it's not a terrible idea. Not a no. terrible idea. No, no. And yeah. where can people learn more about Dave Stewart Jr., mailing list, website, where, where would you want to send people? Yeah, DaveStewartJr.com. Just make sure that you spell Stewart, S-T-U-A-R-T. That's going to kind of give you general website. And then I've made a page just for the book, which is a much better page than like Amazon's page or whatever. And that's DaveStewartJr.com slash T6T. These six things, but it's just T6T. The number six? Yes, all right. Well, thanks so much, John. Thank you. What a privilege, man. I, I'm like, I'm like ready for round two right now. So, hey, one year from now, we'll do the reunion tour. Okay, <laughs> or sooner. <laughs> All right, great. There's not a one year limit. You can come back sooner. All right. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, John. What a what an enjoyable conversation. Thanks for listening to The John Polster Show. Notes, links, and all that other good stuff for this episode are at johnpolster.com slash podcast. Send your questions, ideas, or a simple hello to podcast at johnpolster.com. Want to stay up to date on new episodes and receive notifications of upcoming events? Register your email address at johnpolster.com slash updates.